Hello and welcome to the Wingnet Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people in my travels that I want to bring them on this podcast and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker or a traveller or gap year student or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening and supporting this. And I'll see you soon. Cheers, James. Hello and welcome to this week's episode number 65. That's Travelling with Jolly Bilby from the Wild Frontiers Adventure Tour Group. He owns the company and he had some fantastic stories this week. He's written three books and they're kind of like a trilogy. So they go in order of pretty much the 90s as a decade through some tragic loss in India to the other side where he realised what his passion was and that's tour grouping around the world. Johnny had some brilliant stories in countries such as Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Silk Road, Angola and the Sahara and there's so much content here. I probably could have talked to Johnny for an extra like two hours but obviously in the course of time we had to end the episode so you'll get some great snippets of Johnny's travels in the 90s and previously to that as well. We'll hear about his music interests and of course you'll get to hear what his tour company offers. His flagship tour, the Hindu Kush, is ranked in the National Geographic's top 50 tours to do in your lifetime. So we talk about that one too and it's on my list of things to do in the future. So thanks for joining coming on. It's going to be a great episode, you're going to love it. Lots of content, excited for you to hear it. Next, I'm in the Rockies this weekend so watch out for more content in terms of Canada. I've been posting a few photos this week on social media in relation to Ted's episode last week and that was a great episode to get some juices flowing for Canada and for me too. I've got some notes to take away, some places to add to the list and I can't wait to check them all out. Safe travels, hope you enjoy this week and next week will be more and more, more content. Thank you, bye. Let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to the Winging It Travel podcast and this week I'm joined by travel writer, rock singer and Wild Frontiers Adventure Tour Company tour group owner, Johnny Bilby. Johnny has written three books, had numerous articles published in publications like The Times, The Observer, National Geographic and more, and has released a documentary. He's also in the rock band The Tim Pot Gods, which we will talk about before we get to the travel stuff later. And just finally, Johnny's Hindu Kush adventure tour with Wild Frontiers was named in National Geographic's top 50 tours to do in your lifetime, and it's definitely on my list. So we'll delve into the history of that, some personal travel history, his life, and also his rock band that he's been in since the 80s, I think. So, Johnny, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you. Yes. So please tell listeners where you are. I am in what is at the moment sunny Oxfordshire. I'm actually uh, looking out of a window onto a wall. And beyond that, there is a mare and a one-week-old foal frisking oh. around in the field. Wow. So it's, it's all rather pretty and idyllic. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'm the classic COVID case. I'd lived in London for 35 years. um, And when COVID happened and lockdowns came around, I realised that a very small house in Shepherd's Bush, uh, which for your readers, your listeners that don't know where that is, is not the most salubrious part of town. It's not. um, (laughs) It's not a great place to be spending months on end. So um, very luckily, fortuitously, we managed to find a, a cottage in the country, which we've moved to. And so that was two years ago. And um, in February this year, we sold the house in London and are now kind of pretty much permanently moved down here. So it's uh, it's beautiful. It's very green. It's lots of trees. It's lots of fields, foals, mares, cows, you name it. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's good for the soul. Yeah, it sounds like the, the idyllic English countryside. That's that you exactly sort, you what sort of think is. in your mind. 
Yeah. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Dream, yeah. dream. Cliched even, but hey, who cares? Hey, who cares? Yeah. And also Shepherd's Bush. Yeah, I used to live in East Acton back in the day. Okay, well, next, so, next, next far along. Yeah, I totally know what you're talking about there. I didn't have the best of times there. Let's let's just say that. Well, I, I, the thing that that always got you know, I suppose why I managed to make it 35 years in London. Um, I'm I'm a farmer's boy. I grew up in the countryside, so I moved to London when I was I don't know 18 or something. But because of my traveling life, I've always left London. So yeah. you know, London has always been a different kind of place for me than it would have been for a lot of other people that spend, you know. 48 weeks of the year in London. I, I probably have rarely spent more than eight months of a year in London. So going away, coming back, going away, coming back, sometimes even for years at a time, um, has meant that London was a different place to me than it would have been for many people. So so I, I haven't had to endure until COVID those long, long, long months of the same thing, you know, time after time. So, but as I say, all things come to an end and I think it was the right time to move out. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you probably weren't there all year round. Yeah, I guess I was, when I lived in London about four years, it was not that long, but I was constantly there, right? Maybe apart from the summer, I dipped back to Norwich, but yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, this, this winter has been a really good example of that. This is the first winter that I've spent in the UK, six months of it, literally from, I think I, I got back from Greece at the beginning of October and I didn't travel abroad again until I just went to India in March, that's a little bit of a fib. I did have a one-week ski trip, but let's Ooh. ignore that. Yeah, let's ignore um, that. It doesn't uh, count. So no sunshine for six months, and it's depressing. I tell you what, I know oh. why. You're in, I see why you're in Vancouver. You know, <laughs> a, Brit a British winter. No, it's it's unrelenting. I tell you, I'm, I'm not going to have to. I'm not going to do that again in a hurry. So um, you know, next winter I shall be away again. I'm sure. Is <laughs> a question for you then, because. I totally get this. And this is what we had this winter. In Vancouver, it doesn't really snow. So we don't get snow, but it constantly rains. And I said to Emma the other day, my girlfriend, I said, it's, it's rained since we got back from UK in October, pretty much every day. She's like, yeah, I think it has. And that's six months every day. Yeah. Would you rather have like no rain, but snow? You know, it's a clear blue sky, but quite a lot of snow. So like, let's say Eastern Canada. Or would you rather have no snow, but like constant rain? Where it's a bit, well, bit, bit warmer, not, not quite as cold. <laughs> So, so uh, I'm sure we might come to this in due course, but I actually uh, was at college in Canada for a year in Montreal. Oh, okay. And, yeah. uh, just, just north of Montreal. And so we had five months of sub-zero temperatures. I mean, yeah. the temperature literally never got above minus 10 for five months. And your whole life is kind of different. It's based around that. So, of course, it's snow, it's ice, it's, it's you know, plugging your car in at night because the engine will freeze otherwise. It's... <laughs> all the coats and stuff you have. Um, and I actually loved that. I mean, I quite like extremes. So I would definitely go for the cold and the snow rather than the mild and the and, and, and the drizzle. Drizzle, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> Vancouver is quite an outdoorsy place, right? There's loads of hikes, yeah. loads of mountains. When it rains, I don't think it's an indoor city where I think Montreal, you, you probably could have quite a good time there, right? Oh, Indoors. yeah. No, yeah. We, we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe no further questions on that. But yeah, it's a... Uh, it's a different contrast to East and Western Canada. It's quite quite interesting. Yeah. Okay, before we get to travel, we've got to talk about your band. Yes. Okay. The, well, the um, Tin Gods. Yeah, the Tin Gods. So um, goodness, where to start? Well, let's go all the way back to the to the 80s, really, early 80s at that. So, I mean, my kind of 
musical awakening. Okay, I'll tell you this. My first single I ever bought was yep. Tiger Tiger Feet by oh, Mud. Mud, yeah, great tune. <laughs> so I don't know what year that would have been, probably about 1973, 74. Yeah. Um, I think the second one I ever bought was Crocodile Rock by Elton John. But the first the first kind of musical awakening I had really was Bob Dylan and and mm. um, listening to things like Desire, Street Legal, albums like that. That then, I suppose, kind of naturally fed me onto in that kind of genre of music, if you like, to things mm. like Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin. Um, goodness, I don't know those kind of bigger kind of rock bands. Yeah. But in the in the early eighties in Canada, actually, was where I kind of discovered more of the kind of new wave and punk scene. And bands like The Police were playing in Montreal. I remember seeing Frank Zappa. Of course, we saw the boss, Frank Bruce Zappa. Springsteen. Yeah. Um, and, and for a 17-year-old kid, fresh out of you know school in England, this was absolutely amazing. And, and particularly the kind of the more punky end of it, because, you know, you, you, you could suddenly pick up a guitar, play three chords, and, and you could play music. Whereas, of course, yeah. listening to Led Zeppelin or certainly Pink Floyd, there's not a cat in hell's chance of sounding anything like those guys. And Frank so, Zappa but, as well. He, well exactly. Oh, crikey. It, it, exactly. <laughs> so, so it kind of opened up this, this new kind of um, uh, passion um, and, and excitement. Um, and I, I think, you know, most young people will go through a musical kind of phase where mm. music defines their era, their character, their friendships, their, you know, it becomes a major, major part of your life. And of course, what better way to exploit that fully than by being in a band? So I was, as as the rest of my band would absolutely attest to, I was never a musician. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, even though I played rhythm guitar, I quite often turn around and find out that the lead guitar is to turn my amp off <laughs> halfway through a gig, which wasn't very nice. <laughs> um, but, but no, um, so, so yeah, so I kind of learned rudimentary rhythm guitar, but I did have a fairly decent voice and I could sing and I mm. didn't mind getting up on stage and larking around and, you know, playing the front man. So, so we did that. And, and um, even though kind of Canada was the kind of musical awakening, it was in Australia where we tra where I traveled to pretty much straight afterwards that, um, again, we started to see small bands playing in small clubs and we got the idea to kind of form a band. And when we got back to England, we did that and yeah. eventually settled on the name Tin Gods and we started playing and we, you know, did hundreds of gigs um, uh, around town, up and down the country. We never played abroad, which was always a bit of a, a oh, yeah. we, we, we have done subsequently, but it, in that era when we were actually trying to make it, we, we didn't play abroad. It was, it was a trickier thing to do back in those days. But um, anyway, so, so yeah, so, so our musical influences, well, if you go back to about 1985 when we started, I should think it was probably the Psychedelic Furs and Billy Idol. And by the time we finished in 1989, we would, probably more influenced by the water boys <laughs> so, so we'd kind of transitioned somewhat but i think even though we were quite good if i say so myself yeah. i think we were always trying to be our favorite band rather than actually being, being ourselves and i think that's probably why we never never actually really made it we, we got fairly close to some major record deals we yep. had an independent record deal uh, we released four singles we had we did videos we were on a couple of tv shows but at the end of the day we never managed to clinch that big deal that you needed in those days to actually record albums properly to get them released to get the whole thing going mm. and so the whole thing kind of petered out at the end of 19 or halfway through 1989 really 
you know, you say we're still going. Uh, the last time we played was actually at my wedding, which was about five years ago. So we haven't played for a bit. Uh, oh, okay. not, not that we won't play again, but that's mainly because the guitarist, Andy, and his wife, Kate Ellis, uh, are very, very good musicians. And they've just released their second album, uh, oh, wow. which, is, which is called Scars. And she yeah. they play Americana music and they're absolutely great. And and um, so he's been so focused on that that we haven't managed to kind of do gigs. We keep talking about it. Then COVID happened. We'll, we'll get it together and we'll play again. But um, yeah, it, 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 it was a great way to spend your early 20s gigging in London, uh, you know, playing shows night after night. Um, you know, it was a it was a brilliant thing to do. But uh, I got to, I got to a stage where I just kind of thought, you know what, I'm starting to go bald. You can't be a bald rock singer. So so so, um, so I thought yeah, I maybe thought, not actually. So I think I'm trying to think of one, but I can't think of one. <laughs> so, so I thought kind of, well, there probably are a few, but you yeah. wouldn't know they're wearing good wigs. I yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so so um, so I just decided, yeah, that it was time to move on, and so I, yeah. I, I did. Um, and hence the you know from there via a circuitous route came the travel career. I was, I won't say exactly the same, but I was, I was pretty similar. I was in London, early 20s, in a band, doing gigs. Maybe not as much as you, but more pop-orientated than maybe punk. But yeah, I think travel took over for me. I, I kind of knew even in that band, I was like, no, I'd rather go and travel than trying to make it as a as a band. But that's halfway through my degree, so I wanted to finish my music degree. But my, my, oh. awake, my awakening is a bit different. So you mentioned about you at your time in the 70s. I mean, I wish I grew up in the 60s or 70s, but... At my time, I was like, there is no one. So my, my awakening was two people, and that was Jimi Hendrix, who's obviously much, much older than me, and Stevie Ray Vaughan, who's a, who's a brilliant blues guitarist. They were, were my two, and still are, top two. And then Led Zeppelin came along, and then a few other people, Eric Clapton and people like that. But I guess modern bands, maybe Muse, Muse as a rock band is probably in my top five, but that's it. I couldn't really tell you anyone at that time. I've got a very embarrassing confession. I mean, for me, kind of music finished in about 1992, I think. I think when, <laughs> right. when, yeah. when OK Computer was released, I think that's probably the last album I ever bought. Really? From a, yeah. from a, a release, you know, yeah. I mean, I've bought albums since, but that was probably the last one I bought as a release. Um, yeah, I saw Muse play one one time in a very small venue and they were just kind of breaking out. Yeah, I've, you know. I don't have children, and I think my friends who have children keep more up to date, up to speed oh, okay. on the kind of music scene than I do. Because yeah, I just listen to the old stuff that I love, and I still yeah, you, know, you still you still do hear the odd good new thing. I kind of force myself to though. Like I still listen to the old stuff. Muse are the only band I would say that I still look out for on albums. They got one coming out this year. I'll buy that. Yeah, but I think music stopped in maybe two thousand five. Maybe when when X Factor came in, that's when it finished. I think. That right, sure. Well, that's right. Everything changed yeah. then. Yeah, everything changed. That's what that's what I wrote my dissertation anyway. Not sure yeah. I get published, but um, <laughs> yeah, got two one for it, so I'll take it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think up to that point, yeah, I'm the same as you. I don't I don't listen to anyone new, but I do force myself weekly on Spotify just to put twenty twenty two new hits and just see for an yeah. hour if there's anything. But it rarely comes up. You know, yeah. nothing really yeah. tickles anymore. No. Nope. <laughs> there we oh, are. Well. <laughs> music done. done. Right. We're, we're completing music, right? Let's go to travel, Let's which I'm travel. sure you complete as well. Yeah, you mentioned earlier you left college and yeah, you went to Australia and the Far East. So, what was the thinking there after college? Where did you go and what was the time frame? Well, so, so you know, travel is such a kind of infectious thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, just to kind of go one step back, I, I managed to get a, a girlfriend who lived in the Bahamas, which was a very good place to have a girlfriend. <laughs> wow. if, if your dad was prepared to say, okay, here's 300 quid for an air ticket, 
bugger off for the summer. So I did that. And, and of course, that was pretty amazing, but but was still very much the West, kind of the Western world. You know, you're yeah. in a smart place with drinking, you know, cocktails and all that sort of stuff. Um, then I found myself in Canada, again, the Western world, a great awakening from landscapes and culture, you know, a very different kind of world. I traveled right the way around the States with the school and everything. So I just wanted to keep the travel thing going. I mean, it, it, it was just kind of already getting into my system. With my mates from Canada, we decided to go to Australia uh, as soon as they'd all finished their A-levels. I never did my A-levels. They, they all did their A-levels. Then we, we went off to Australia. And on the way there and on the way back, we traveled through Indonesia and, and stuff like that. And that was, of course, Australia for nine months was, was great, but that was working experience. It was, again, another Western culture, That's Western culture, life. Yeah. You know, it was growing up, but it was very much in a, in a world that we kind of knew. Indonesia, on the other hand, completely blew my mind. And mm -hmm. that was something that, you know, you only get this culture shock once in your life when you really see something so radically different from the world that you're used to. The smells, the sights, the tastes, the people, Everything about it is alien to you. We we actually kind of got there by default, really. We were traveling Garuda Railways, which was the cheapest way to get to Australia. And it stopped in about eight different places between <laughs> London and Australia, one of, one of which was Bali. And, and oh, this yeah. is Bali in 1982, 83. So there was tourism, don't get me wrong, but it was nothing like what it is today. today. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and when we got... To go when we were supposed to be on the next leg to Melbourne, um, the stewardess or some came up to us and said, "Look, guys, um, they've overbooked the flight. Would you mind staying and taking tomorrow's flight, staying in Bali for the night?" You didn't need visas or anything like that, so we said, "Yeah, sure, we'll 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 stay." Anyway, we stayed three weeks, and of course, it was the most kind of hedonistic, ridiculous time I think I've ever <laughs> spent in my life. Uh, you know, magic mushrooms on the beach and, yeah, and all that. All that. <laughs> yeah. what, what I remember more than anything is kind of is is the smell of clove cigarettes, of the kind of fires burning. Um, as I say, that the heats, that kind of tropical heat hitting you, the sound of the cicadas, uh, the sea, the black beaches, these unbelievable food I'd never tasted before, um, and yeah, it just wowed me uh, and and injected in me a kind of travel bug that has never left me since i've got another question for that actually you just come up with something that i totally agree with the culture shock now my question would be i i think i agree when i when i first went traveling properly non-westernized 2013 bangkok was my culture shock and i couldn't believe what i've seen smelling hearing but since then even though there's different countries with different extremes like india for example is a different extreme yep. Um, Japan is, is a crazy like world what's going on here never really the same culture shock so do you think once you've had that first one any other country around the world is to a degree not the same even though it could yeah. be difficult but not not that instant wow what is this I, I, I as I say I think you get that total culture shock once, once and once you've yeah. had that once you could end, you could go your, your next place could be the Arctic you won't be as surprised as you were mm. on that first occasion that first moment of walking out of an airport terminal and bearing in mind the Bali airport terminal at the time was it was a shack, you know, and you and you walk into this street and, and there are all everything you look at, everything you smell, everything you hear is completely alien and new to you. You never quite are wondered in the same way. I mean, I think as a traveler, I'm always wowed by places. I always yes. find wonder in places. It's not to say that 
travel therefore becomes boring from that moment on. Not at all. But that total culture shock, I think only happens once. Yeah, I think I agree. Yeah, I never really discussed that. I think, I wouldn't say I've been chasing that shock because I don't think you can get it back, but it makes travel just not as intimidating since that point, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 you're totally right. It's a good word. I mean, uh, and as I say, I mean, I uh, we'll talk about it later, but I've just got back from Sri Lanka and it was a brand new country and I'd never been there before. And again, I was wowed by it. I just thought it was mm. absolutely beautiful, fascinating. Yeah. All the different things that one travels for. So, oh yeah, you, you know, it's many years ago since I did that Bali trip over 30 years ago. Um, and I'm still being wowed by places. So, yeah. Yeah. I think for the listeners, I do try to put out there that if you are going to go and travel, try and not go if you're westernized you know don't try and go to western country try and go somewhere a little bit sort of left field really try and go somewhere yeah. a bit different because totally. um, i think you'll learn a lot and about yourself and the place as well so i think it's a, only a good thing 100 percent. okay going to move on to your motorcycle trip from london to cape town because i think you released three books so we're going to base i'm keen to hear your experiences behind those books and why you wrote them so you took the western route through algeria the congo Angola, and namibia so what was the thinking here? Why did you go on this trek, on this route and experience? And then obviously, how was it? So I'm in the band, five years in the band. While I'm in the band, I'm I'm living with uh, my girlfriend, Melanie, and we are living together, having a wonderful relationship, soulmates, everything else. And it was kind of partly due to her desire to travel that I decided to quit the band and go traveling. Oh, so we okay. went off traveling and we headed down to Thailand and we spent two months down there, both on the beaches in the south and up into the kind of rainforests of uh, Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai and up there. Yeah. And then we flew to Delhi. And from Delhi, we took a bone shattering 36 hour journey in a bus up to Srinagar in Kashmir. Yeah. And we spent two weeks um, toodling around in the houseboats and on the shikaras and, and everything, having a wonderful time. But then extraordinarily, dramatically and sadly, Melanie died one night. Um, uh, I say one night, actually early in the morning. And this was such a catastrophic uh, shock, mm. low event in a young man's life. So I was had just turned 26. Melanie was oh, about wow. 25. I didn't really have a career at that time. We were still traveling. Um, you know, we were talking about setting up different things, uh, you know, starting a life together. And so you, you kind of think you're on one path and you think you're going one way and then suddenly out of the blue that's all completely taken away and you find yourself bashed up against a brick wall yeah yeah can't imagine it yeah without any idea of what to do and where to go um so when the dust kind of settles and that first kind of period of grief subsides you realize that you've got to get pull yourself together and 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 start making your own life in a in a different way to how you'd imagined it and it was at that time that as i say i'm kind of 27 now a lot of my friends are getting married they're they're, they're starting to move into careers. They're even having babies. You know, they, they are doing the more traditional um, route of life, if you yeah. like, having come out of our early 20s where it was all kind of hedonistic and just having a laugh and what have you. Things are starting to get more serious for most mm. of them. For me, that opportunity, at least in the short term, had been taken away. I was yeah. going to marry Melanie. Melanie died. I wasn't going to, I didn't have that, that option open to me. So I kind of thought, well, what option? do I have? And and one thing that I kind of fell back on was my travels. And I, I met a guy who'd driven a motorbike to Africa. And at exactly the same moment, Melanie's mum actually um, found me a job or a potential job working on a coffee plantation in Kenya. 
And I thought, well, this is perfect. Why don't I just drive the motorbike to Kenya and start this job and see where <laughs> awesome. I take it? Yeah. Um, now, just so I got my Yamaha Tenere XT600 <laughs> motorbike, which is a beast of a machine, absolutely beautiful. I took it up to my father's farm in Lincolnshire and I decked it all out and got the jerry cans fitted on, got all the equipment. I, uh, just at that time, the job fell through at this coffee plantation but i thought to hell with it i'm i'm all you know geared up now for for this trip i'm just going to drive across africa and see what happens i basically turned south at clapham junction and i didn't turn north again <laughs> until I hit um so so yeah it was um the the reasons behind it were very powerful grief Grief, um, yeah. you know really looking for meaning in life i mean uh, when you lose somebody that means as much to you as that at that age, you know, she was just 24 years old. Um, it, it's profoundly shocking. And, and you really do question the whole idea of life and whether it's worth it and what the motivation is behind it, etc. And I just needed something to kind of convince me that life was going to be worth living. Um, and I didn't mind risking quite a lot in order to try and find that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, ironically, uh, I say ironically, um, a great mate of mine was going through a, a divorce and he asked if he could join me this is just before we're, I'm due to leave. And I said, yeah, fine. So he quickly got his bike together, came down uh, to the coast and we, we drove, drove out to, to, um, to France and then across from Marseille to Tunis and then from Tunis into Algeria. Unfortunately, Neil fell off on day one and broke his leg. So <laughs> home day one. Oh. Day one. I, I guess it's going to happen that day one, I suppose. <laughs> well, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And I think it was, you know, how much one believes in faith and all these things, but it was just a journey looking back that I think I had to do myself. It was, it sure. was, there was so yeah. much self-discovery, self-consciousness mm. um, about it that I just felt, yeah, looking back, it was, probably right neil met his second wife by breaking his leg and going home so that worked out for him as well yeah so so anyway so there i am i'm on my own and and i'm driving across africa um and yeah i mean what i found interesting to begin with this is now 1991 1991 Mm -hmm. uh october 1991 was how many people i found on this route i mean it was actually quite a big tourist route there were (laughs) trucks there were a load of French guys selling, taking Peugeot 504 kind of six seater cars, driving them to Niger to flog them as taxis and make money. Uh, there were other motorcyclists. There were bicycle. I mean, it, it was like a bloody motorway of people. <laughs> and I thought, hang on a minute. This isn't what I expected. Yeah. I thought it would be, you know, Lawrence of Arabia heading out on my own on this kind of quest <laughs> across Africa. Um, anyway, it was great fun. I met a lot of, you know, fun people on that first part of the journey. But when I got to, when it, when it kind of crossed the Sahara, and that in itself is an absolutely wonderful experience. Yeah, it must be amazing. Yeah, being yeah. in the middle of the desert is just oh, wow. Tr- tr- truly incredible um so you get across there and you go down to um to, to kind of northern Ca- uh, nigeria into cameroon and it was at this point where the route split and everybody because of civil wars going on in places like angola headed uh east across the top of what was then zaire what is now northern congo Central African Republic, kind of Zaire, into Uganda and on to Kenya. And if you yeah. wanted to carry on, then you were in East Africa and you yeah. headed down a relatively simple route through Tanzania, Malawi, etc., into South Africa. I decided that I didn't want to do that. I'd try the Western route, which was down through Angola. Mm. So I headed down through Angola and had a number of adventures 
down through there before eventually making it to Namibia and Cape Town. It took me exactly 100 days from leaving London to reaching Cape Town. Wow. And I think I've got a few questions here. I've got loads of questions, actually. But first of all, I had, I won't say a similar experience, but my, my nan died in India, actually. So I had a, a, a grief period in India, same as you, right, where suddenly it happened. Oh, where was I? I was on my way to Darjeeling, so yeah. must have been near Varanasi, I'd imagine. But yeah, just suddenly when, you, when your mum rings you at 5 a.m. in the morning, five times, you're like, Ooh, what's happened here? And yeah. the shock is is something that you just can't, um, yeah. you can't even really describe. So yeah, that was a tough period where yeah. it's kind of towards the end of my three-month trip. I had to go home early because um, obviously the funeral, et cetera. But yeah, real tough. And I think the rest of the trip was, you know, all your thoughts go with you. You feel a bit of, well, I felt a bit of guilt. I wasn't there etc so yeah it was a tough time and i think we done a trek in darjeeling in the singalila trek which is around kanjanjunga the third highest mountain i think it is in the world yeah and one 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 morning <clears throat> one after the third day of this trek five days i was really hanging this tough trek i was really tired and i was grieving a little bit and i was shot mentally gone physically gone i got to the camp went straight to bed no food took my clothes off got to new clothes went to bed and the guard was really worried about me Anyway, next morning, uh, breakfast, I felt, you know, I felt okay. Right, let's do day four. And he brings out some baked beans. Now, I love baked beans. Like, it's probably my number one food, right? But in the, in the height of, like, middle of nowhere between Nepal and India on the border, this army post that we're staying at, I'm like, where the hell did you bring baked beans out? And he said, yeah, we've got this with French toast for breakfast. And it just, like, gave me that yeah. nice feeling of a pick-me-up. And I thought, like, he's really, like, thinking about me and trying to get me through. And I thought that's quite a... Quite a sweet moment, yeah. So it kind of got yeah, me through the, the trek, and that was like unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a an interesting moment on on my India journey there. But yeah, for Angola, my question is, how on earth do you navigate through a country with civil war? Like, there must have be different people who are on different sides, or maybe neutral people just getting you through. Like, how how was that? I mean, over the course of my years of travel, I've been in a number of what would loosely be termed as war zones or areas of conflict or whatever. Angola yeah. was. Was, was probably the first time I'd, I'd done this. Now, technically, at that time, Angola was in a nine-month uh, ceasefire. And the two okay. groups who were called UNITA and the MPLA, who had been fighting each other since the Portuguese had left, uh, were in negotiations in Lisbon to try and iron out their differences. However, of course, on the ground, that doesn't necessarily play out. And what had happened was because... The country was at peace, so to speak. <laughs> a couple of other people had tried to drive through and they'd only been given a three day visa. And they were they were they were six people, two Kiwis and four Brits, three Land Rovers. And they were going through just in front of me. And because they'd only been given a three day visa, they tried to drive. They drove at night and basically they got stopped at a roadblock by well, nobody was ever quite sure whether it was MPLA or UNITA. And they all got shot up. And I mean, really oh, wow. sad. I think four of them oh. were killed. One of them escaped. And I actually met him later back here in the UK. He had been shot six times, but he survived. <sighs> wow. Um, and not only had he survived that, this is 1990. And he'd had to go and have a blood transfusion in hospital in South Africa. So you can mm. imagine the potential oh. danger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. And and he and he was fine. Um, and the two Kiwis that were in the last Land Rover managed to turn around and hightail it out, and and the Land Rover got shot up, but they were okay. So this was uh, this was trans 
this news was transferred to me <laughs> yeah. as I'm coming into Angola, thinking, <laughs> okay, great. Um, but but it, it, in hindsight, and I mean, I you know, I think this is um, it's an interesting part of being a traveler. You you know, you just meet some people that are lucky and some people that just aren't lucky. Some people that 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 just seem to have bad things happen to them, and others that seem to have good things happen to them. And, mm. and I was incredibly lucky because largely probably because of that very event all the united nations peacekeepers were out the roads were probably as safe in that 10-day period that i drove through angola as they had been in the last 25 years so i didn't really have any i'm not saying you don't go along with a fairly nervous disposition but when i got out the other end i managed to i i realized that actually i'd gone through there in a pretty safe time and and i i didn't have any dangers obvious dangers uh, come to me but i mean there were many funny things i mean i remember one police roadblock again these army troops made me go and stay in their barracks for the night and i mean they got <laughs> all these kalashnikovs piled up in the corner and i was sleeping on the top of three bunks with all these soldiers blowing <laughs> really weird and then the next night i happened to to see this oil what do you call it drilling um, outfit so i drove in through these gates into this incredibly modern uh, Western oil centre, and suddenly I'm playing pool with three guys from Scotland drinking. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it was. A, I mean, these weird things that would happen as you kind of go through, and you realise so all these expats were kind of holed up in this little, little oil like refinery enclave, yeah. <laughs> this refinery exactly. Yeah. Uh, but go two miles down the down the road, you're back onto a bush track and sleeping in a, in a chief's <laughs> hut with with you know spiders all over the walls. So. It, really weird jumping and of course you know that that was that was travel i mean my mind was in such a space that things just come at you and you just absorb it but i do remember and and i've often kind of written about this since was that there was one moment on that journey down where uh from cape town sorry from uh from london to cape town where i do really remember a kind of seismic shift in my in, in, in my emotions and my mood. And that was in the middle of the Sahara Desert. My motorbike was called the Yamaha Tenere. The Tenere Desert is a desert, a, a major sand sea in the middle of the Sahara, just off to the uh, east of the main route going across the Sahara. Um, and uh, so I decided that I would take my Yamaha Tenere into the Tenere Desert. Drove right into the middle of it uh, with a French convoy. Uh, they were brilliant. They cooked a barbecued a goat in the middle of the desert of course they had lashings of red wine being french which they shared with me which is lovely and i remember sitting on this sand dune and watching the sky just turn this extraordinary crimson red Uh, and i remember sitting there and thinking okay this is the moment i'm going to remember where i'm leaving grief behind and i'm moving into a more positive new world and Mm. life is worth living i'm very lucky to be alive and i'm going to make the most of it and 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 I, I can kind of remember that feeling, that kind of almost um, euphoric kind of feeling of, OK, I, I know where I'm at now. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, to give you a heads up, I'm going to ask you why someone should travel later. So that's a question you should probably keep in your mind. Um, but for me, uh, 2013 was a big moment because I went for two years. Right. And for me, it is ultimate, apart from the interest in travel, just boredom. Because I asked someone else, I said, oh, you know, why should you go travel? And he said, well, after university, what what are the options? Work. Well, there's nothing else, right? Or, did, or, or you can go traveling or, or do something something like that. I was like, yeah, that's a point. What else do you do? And I think 
for people listening, if you're, and it's never too late, don't get me wrong, but just you just got to kind of have that experience, I think, for, for one or two years because what is the other option? Just that, yeah, have that job nine to five or whatever you do, which there is a time and place for it, but maybe it's not too early on because it can just, you just get bored. And that's what I felt. So boredom was, was the ultimate emotion. So when I left and I landed in Bangkok and after spending a week there, I was like, this is brilliant. Like, why would you want to be anywhere else? I mean, loads of people at the hostel, crazy stories, experiences. It really is like the ultimate, I'd say freedom, I think. Well, uh, and nothing more so than sitting on a motorbike, driving across the Sahara Desert with the wind whistling past you and, you know, 10,000 miles of empty road in front of you to to the other end of the world. I mean, literally, the, the sense of freedom that I had on that trip was something that, again, I'll never feel again. I mean, that was really because... You know, we talked about um, uh, about having that um, kind of culture shock once in your life. I I think that the magic of the first big journey, again, you only really get that once in your life. And we'll talk about this as we as we move through the story. But um, this was a journey for me. It wasn't for a publisher. It wasn't for a TV company. It wasn't for a travel company. It was pure self-indulgent travel (laughs) for my sake, for travel's sake for me to get to a better place. Uh, once you've kind of done that, it's difficult to repeat it. Yeah, I totally agree. Exactly what I did for 2013. Yeah. So just for me, trying to get away from Norwich, let's see what is out there. I'm still traveling because I love it. And, you know, I travel with my girlfriend now who obviously, I was obviously single at the time. Yeah. And it's great. We go to those places, but it's a different type of trip. And they're both good in their own way. But you're right. That first 20, for me, 2013 trip, same as you in 1990, 91. Yeah. That is, you don't really get the same feeling. And that's why I wrote uh, a draft. I got a draft of a book about that, that period of time. Cause I think it's such a great journey and some stories. So yeah, yeah it, it, it needs to get that published. But what was really strange about you, like you said about the whole, like going for Angola and all these, like one moment you're with Scottish geek, like guys drinking whiskey, or whatever. And then next you're probably avoiding getting shot up is <laughs> in that, that same story earlier, about India, Nepal, that army post we stayed at where I kind of struggled that night. Yeah, it's just a bunch of 10, probably 10 army guys. And they're like yeah. inviting us in. They've got their guns all, all, obviously sitting all around, around a fire. They're like, yeah, we don't want to be here, but we've got to be here because we've, we've been told to. And in case the Nepalese come over the border and we're like, are the Nepalese going to come over the border? Like, <laughs> like no, they're not going to come over the border. <laughs> I was like, yeah. No, if, if you were not a part, you might get the Chinese coming over the border. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure the 10 people will, will fend them off. But yeah, yeah, yeah it's interesting uh, stories and journeys, isn't it? And then, you wrote a book about this trip called Running with the Moon, which I believe is a cult travel classic, and I've shamefully not read it. <laughs> so, so I understand. Um, uh, you wouldn't necessarily know it from the royalties that I get, but, um, oh. <laughs> but, but yes, apparently so. And and I do still get people writing to me. I mean, crikey, that book came out, well, I did the journey in 91, 92. I think the book came out in 95. Where are we now? 2003, uh, 2023. So so yeah, I mean, it's it's been out a long time wow yeah 28 28 years and uh i still get people writing to me about it yeah because I, I funnily enough i was uh i went to a talk um of two young lads who had bicycled around the world oh yeah um, not so long ago and uh one of them came up to me and said uh oh god you were so lucky you traveled during the golden age yes i say it's, it's the golden age i totally agree 
I'm not a bloody 150 years old. Me, that was the golden age, Victorian travel or something. Like <laughs> but but but, but, but he said no, and he said um, the reason why is because it was pre-social media. Yeah, pre-phones. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and of course you know, my trip would have been completely different if social media had been a player in those days. Because he, he explained to me that um, on his cycling journey, three hours a day, he had to spend doing social media. And I mm. completely understand it because when I'm working for Wild Frontiers, um, you know, having just got back from Sri Lanka and Kashmir and India, I'm writing blogs, I'm making videos, I'm Instagramming, I'm tweeting. And you're absolutely, and if you're editing video as well and posting that, you're absolutely right. It's three hours a day. And that is the time when you should, when I, and very fortunately in my travels, I was out sitting, chatting to some guy in the bar or, yeah, or, yeah. or having a meal or, or whatever it was, interacting with locals, totally in that zone with those people. I had no WhatsApp communication to my mum or, or brother. I mean, the only communication I had was my World Service radio which I oh, yeah. keep tabs on football scores. But yeah, apart, crucial. Apart, <laughs> apart from that, um, it, it was, uh, you were totally immersed in the country. And I think that's what I do feel sorry for younger people traveling today, that to be totally immersed in the country that you're in is much more difficult because of communication and because of the way that in your phone, so in your pocket, you've got your, your phone and your home and your mum and your, you know, your, yeah, your brother everyone, or whatever, yeah, yeah. all the time. And, yeah. and that makes it very hard to switch off and go into that world, which, of course, back in my day, that wasn't a problem. I totally agree with those those lads because the golden era was probably the 90s, I'd say, maybe yeah. 80s and 90s. Yeah. And I went in and 2013, that- and that was just before really smartphones were coming a, right. a part of social uh, life, really. Yeah. So I didn't have one. So I was the classic guy who, and my friend as well, too, as well. I had no camera as well, no camera, no phone. Yeah. And the yep. only internet I'd have is if you go to a hostel and have a computer, oh, great, I could log into Facebook and, and just say yep. where I am. That's the only thing I, I was doing. Maybe that's why I waxed lyrical about that six months from January to June, right? Because I was in the moment with people, experiences, not on my phone, not like speaking to mum at home. I spoke to her when I got to Australia six months later, yeah? That is, is that sort of difference? <laughs> I, remember, I remember a phone call I had with my dad from Youndi in the Cameroon. Where, um, where I said, uh, I'm about to head into Angola. I'll call you from Cape Town in six weeks' time. <laughs> and I go, really? Um, anyway, I did. And uh, they, they were quite chilled about my travels generally. I, I, although I think recently they, they have confessed that they were slightly more worried than they let on at the time. But uh, I think they'd rather not know, wouldn't they? Just, exactly. yeah, just, just ring me and then that's cool. Exactly. Right. I would say, not golden period, but there was a period of time where you know phones weren't a thing. So I've done travel in that period. But now... Yeah. It's, yeah. it's easy, isn't it? Just oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll, go, we'll go there and I can speak to someone there. And yeah, it's too easy. Yeah. OK, so we can find that Running with the Moon book, I guess, in all the classic bookshops or online, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, I think the reason why it did so well was because it, it married the two stories. It wasn't just a travelogue of me traveling across Africa. It was the story of Melanie and myself. It also involved a certain Algerian beauty called Amel, who... Um, <laughs> became my first wife um, and is uh, not my wife today, but is, okay. uh, is still a very good friend um, <laughs> and uh, who I met on that journey. So it was a, a real enlightening story of, of really kind of um, getting over grief. But I think what then transpired as I kind of moved on into the next adventure mm. is that grief is something, is, is a very 
strange and powerful animal and it hangs around for a long time in various different ways um and so i think what actually ended up was was really the three books that i wrote was really a trilogy it was it was really a a continuation of the same story oh, okay of of kind of coming to terms with grief full circle over a kind of seven eight nine year period um as seen through three adventures so i think when i got back from my africa trip i think i kind of thought okay that's it you know i know life is worth living now and and i can kind of move on um but it wasn't quite as simple as that um mm. not least because i happened to marry an algerian girl <laughs> uh but uh but but you know so 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 yeah i mean what happened next and and this is where life is strange you just don't know where things are going to take you you kind of i wrote the book and you've got to bear in mind i never did my a levels i failed my english gcse five times <laughs> um, wow the, the idea of me being a writer was pretty preposterous in fact one of my friends said to me um johnny uh, when when you've written it when it just after i've written my second book they said you're the first person in the history of world to have written more books than they've read which was <laughs> harsh but not Maybe far true. from the truth. <laughs> yeah. um but i think what's um you know i was dyslexic and, and things like that which caused me to struggle at school but evidently i'm not completely stupid and and i knew how to tell a story so so i could write that out but what i then found of course when the book came out and was uh reviewed well and and sold well uh was that i am suddenly a writer but am i really a writer or have i just had a story that i wanted to tell mm. so it was time to go and find out and um i knew immediately what the second story i wanted to do was it was based around the first book that i'd ever read which was a book that melanie had given me i didn't read a book until i was 21 okay. um because it was just too much of a hassle really uh, and i preferred playing football playing sport larking around but she'd give me this book called the man who would be king by rudyard kipling um which is a book of short stories based in india um and i absolutely loved this story of these two vagabond british soldiers peachy carnahan and daniel dravet as they uh traveled from um rajasthan the kind of heat and dust of the indian plains up into the hindu kush to go and become kings of kafiristan <laughs> it's a fiction it's a fictional story but yeah. there were a lot of elements to this story that were real so i thought i will try and retrace these guys steps uh, fic fictional steps and see you know what that world is really like today and so i did just that i i flew into i i i traveled actually i traveled for about 3 or 4 months in india beforehand then i got to rajasthan and then i traveled up from rajasthan um up through delhi along the grand trunk road across into pakistan and then ultimately over the khyber pass into afghanistan and up into a province of afghanistan called nuristan which is oh, yeah. um, right on the eastern border of afghanistan and um and pakistan is that uh, where they got like blonde people there and stuff uh well that's the kalash which i okay. know nuristan would be that as well but the kalash particularly which are actually okay. on the pakistan side of the border right um and uh and, and so i yeah i did that journey i went wandering off into the hindu kush and it was um differences of kind of dangers you're never quite sure how dangerous a place is and until something really bad is probably happening true um i got shot at in afghanistan in nuristan oh wow um, but the guy said to me i i'd climbed up the top of this hill to a to a little village at uh, 300 meters above the valley floor and the river 
and uh, was sitting on his balcony, his kind of little veranda. And um, and suddenly we hear these shots ring out. And we could see the bullets kind of hitting the ground 10 feet below us. And he quickly ushered me into his into his little room. Um, and, and he started laughing. I said, what are you laughing? He said, oh, well, look, look, don't don't take it personally. That's just my enemy across there. And the best way to get at your enemy in Neurostar is to kill your kill your guest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's reassuring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You might have told me that before you invited yeah. me. I mean, there were times in Africa where there were situations which could could have got dangerous very quickly. But I think in in places like Afghanistan, there is a creed, there is a kind of uh, uh, an understanding. And if you stay on the right side of a certain line, you'll probably be okay. Like a but code, if, you mean? Like just a code, exactly. Yeah. A, okay, a, a code that you that that people. And of course, the other thing is, you know, one of the things that was most dangerous in Africa were drunk soldiers. Whereas you don't really get ah, right. drunk in Afghanistan. True. Very rarely, anyway. Mm. So, so, um, but uh, in terms of an actual war zone, yeah, um, Afghanistan was obviously much more dangerous. But, um, but it's the most fascinating country I've ever travelled in, and I've travelled there since. And and you know, Wild Frontiers was, if not the first, certainly one of the first UK companies to start running commercial mm. tourism trips there. Um, and it's an extraordinary place. And I think what's been going on there recently has been very sad. Yeah, it's, very, it's awful, isn't it? I think, do you know what? Up to that point, it was, it was starting to creep up Afghanistan, wasn't it? I, I thought I was starting to read a few things. People were traveling there a bit more. I did, yeah. I did think Afghanistan was kind of creeping up to be a place where people actually want to go and see um, until well, we were taking we we for summer 2022. We had two full groups, but we can't take them, of course. Yeah, um, I guess that is. Is that, so totally no, off, is that still totally off limits, do you think? Or Well, the main problem, I mean, I'm not saying that one couldn't, but the main problem is, you know, the people that we use to operate these trips um, are, you know, are not necessarily there anymore. Or if they are, um, they are trying to get their own lives together. Sure. Um, so I think we, we just felt the dust needs to settle before we can possibly start operating trips in a Taliban controlled country. Yeah, that's fair so, enough. So, so, but but as a as a journey back again in the nineties, um, that was an extraordinary experience. I mean, seeing those countries and that was that was um, you know uh, these young lads called my travels in the nineties the golden age. I probably yeah. back on the sixties and seventies as the golden age, possibly. Um, yeah, uh, but I think that was where I was lucky enough to see a world that was pretty similar to how it would have been in the 60s and 70s True. which means it was pretty similar to how it would have been in the 16th and 17th centuries yes there was no, there were no roads i didn't hear a combustion engine for nearly 40 days mm. uh, there was no electricity um you know life was pretty basic um, yeah. the only real modern thing that people had was a radio um, and the, often in the villages, the kind of headman in the village would turn on the radio at eight o'clock every evening to get the BBC's diary service to get the news on the BBC. Oh, okay. Pe pe people forget that. People don't understand how important the BBC World yeah. Service is around wow. the world, and and how in villages in you know the Hindu Kush, that was what they relied on for information about what wow. was going on in the war in the rest of the country. Yeah. Um, so so they had that, and of course they had Kalashnikovs. But apart from that, it. <laughs> Pretty much, you know, the goats and the chickens and and a, and a life that would not have looked very different 300 years ago. You're right. We met two older ladies in India, actually, on that on my trip there. 
and they travel by car from London to India back in the 60s. And they said, you know, I think they're a couple of French ladies, but they speak English, like back in the day, you could drive through all these countries, no problems. We even got, we even broke down in Afghanistan and people helped us like, repair our car and yeah. went through like Iran and all these countries, like through the middle. And yeah. it's the most amazing trip. They met each other in India to discuss the trip they'd done 40 years before. And they're just saying, unfortunately, yeah, you can't do that these days. I'm like, yeah. So maybe 60s was the golden age. I don't know. I, I, I think, I mean, certainly in, as far as um, the, 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 the great route, if you like, yes. from from Europe to Asia, uh, that was the, the you know the magic bus and all those kind of things. That was the kind of middle of the sixties to the middle of the seventies. That that was a great era. And at Wild Frontiers, we take quite a lot of clients back to a lot of these places that did it exactly then. That, oh that, wow, that must be amazing. That, that, that route then. So yeah, I I think that was a. That was a kind of time when there there was a kind of peace throughout that kind of that region. But mm. yeah, and the Hindu the Hindu Kush as well. I wasn't really aware of it until I went to a webinar earlier this year. I think you were there for Capri Falconeri magazine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was aware of Pakistan because I was in India and people showing pictures that they've travelled there, and I was like, wow, that looks unbelievable. But when I started doing research into Hindu Kush area, I was like, that scenery is a different level. Like it looks incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah. That's the, that's the Hunza Valley, which is actually the Karakoram. But the, you know, what you have is the greater Himalayan arc. And that starts with the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan and, and goes up through Pakistan and then to the Karakoram and then the Himalaya. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's mind bogglingly beautiful. Mm. I mean, that view that, I, that is behind me is taken from a hotel we stay at in Hunza in northern Pakistan, where you can see seven, 7,000 meter peaks. There's no, wow. you know, where else in the world can you do that without trekking for two weeks to get Got there? one here? Yeah, only one in my background. That's the Annapurna in the pool. That's the Annapurna, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But you've got to trek to do it here. You yep. can bloody drive here. <laughs> <laughs> Which I know is not necessarily the point, but um, but no, it's it's uh, northern Pakistan is well, it's really booming for us again now, which is great. With we, we've got literally a group going out there tomorrow, um, and we will have groups running all summer and all autumn. Uh, I'm going back out there in three weeks' time. I shall be up uh, in Hunza in about four weeks' time. Wow. Um, it's it's just one of the most fascinating, beautiful. Um, hospitable places you're ever likely to visit it's it's, it's fast and that of course doing that journey and traveling through pakistan uh in search of this kafiristan which arguably you could say is the kalash valleys the kalash are a pagan tribe that live mm. uh, in three narrow valleys that kind of buttress up against the afghan frontier um uh they, they are um they're the remnants of this greater uh, pagan area that they used to be uh, and it was while staying there that I was given this idea by the chief spokesperson for the Kalash to start Wild Frontiers. So Wild Frontiers is actually named after the Northwest Frontier, which was the province in which I decided to set up my travel business. Oh, well, and we will come to more details of Wild Frontiers later. Um, but yeah, I was going to say this obviously, obviously inspired you to set, set up Wild Frontiers. And yeah. hence why this tour that you do operate is named in the top 50 of all time that you should do in your lifetime. I think when I had Emma Thompson on, she said it's probably one of the best things she's ever did. Yeah, she did it with us, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, she absolutely uh, loved it. 
Yeah. 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 Well, I, I was trying to persuade her to go because it's great to get a woman's perspective on those kind of trips as well, because I think women can be a bit intimidated by going to countries like Pakistan. But actually, yeah. on our group trips, it's a great way to do it. And Emma was brilliant, wrote a really good article for us. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, it, it, it's I think the word that most people use is surprising. People are surprised, not just by the beauty, by the magnificence, but by the hospitality, the friendliness or everything surprises them. The quality of the food, the quality of the hotels. It, it, you know, it's a it's a wonderful part of the world. And it looks a great trip and it's on my list. So don't you worry about that. Yeah. And also just back to your original trip. Uh, you obviously wrote a book about this trip as well. And it's called For a Pagan Song. For a Pagan Song, yeah. Yeah, and it obviously details your your journey there. This must have been, just to finalise this, it must have been a, an interesting journey because you're going back to India. Exactly. It must be a so, different element to this trip because you're yeah. going back to the place where obviously those awful events happened. That's right, exactly. Um, yes, going back to India and a kind of feeling that I had unfinished business with India. Yes. Not only that, I mean, what I hadn't told you at the start of the show is that uh, my mum was born in India and my grandmother uh, and grandfather lived there during the kind of dying days of the Raj, I suppose, or pre-Second World War. My mum came home during the Second World War. Um, and, uh, and so I'd had lots of stories of India all my life. Um, but the fact that Melanie had died in India and therefore it obviously cut our trip short uh, meant that I still felt that I had something to find in India. So there was there was quite a lot of soul searching there, um, heading up then into Pakistan and Afghanistan again, just kind of, you know, trying to find uh, some sort of um, closure, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but the closure really came. It, it probably did come on that trip, but I didn't really realize it until I did my third trip. Okay. And, that, and that was the horse riding journey along the Silk Road. And, and that was the kind of reasons behind it were much more spurious. I'd always, okay, so the Africa journey, that was a pure heartfelt, I want to ride my motorbike to the other end of the world to discover that life's worth living. Yeah. When you're suddenly a travel writer and you've got a publisher saying, we want another book. And the story I always wanted, it had a link to Melanie and that it was the first book she'd give me. It was a, it, it was the first book I'd ever read. It was, um, it was a it was a, a a story that came from the heart. It was a passion. I wanted to do it. Then the third one, suddenly you're kind of into the realms of publishers, agents, mm. TV production companies, all wanting. It sounds a bit grandiose to say wanting a piece of you, but they all want you to go and do something. Yeah, that, dictating that, something, right? That will be commercially uh, uh, successful. Yeah. Um, and what that ended up being was was a was a complete kind of mishmash, really. I, I I met this girl in Islamabad, all going great. We said, let's go traveling across Central Asia on horseback. She said, great. Unfortunately, I came back to England for three or four months. By the time I got back there, she'd found another bloke. Uh, <laughs> okay. so, so my plan for kind of going across the Silk Road for her wasn't with her wasn't going to work. Um, but in that time, I'd already got a TV contract. I got a book contract number of you know uh newspaper magazine article contracts etc so my agent came up with this idea of advertising for a girl now bearing in mind this is kind of before big brother or just before big brother it, it's it's kind of before reality tv had really taken off mm -hmm. uh, but that's what it was it was basically kind of castaways on horseback through central asia and what on paper kind of looked probably great and evidently because i got you know discovery channel contract and one thing and another as i went across this journey i began to realize that this was just not what 
I should be doing with my life. Yes. I'm not saying I didn't have some amazing times. Travel was still there. Riding horses along the Silk Road had its moments, no doubt about it. But I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. I was doing it for a purely commercial kind of thing um, with a stranger that a lot of the time we didn't really get on. We had different visions of how we wanted the film to be and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I realized by the time I got to the end of that journey, that I had the answer already there, which was Wild Frontiers. I'd created this. Yeah, in the trip before. From the trip before, which was already doing well. Um, I didn't need to keep flogging my ass around the world, writing books about, you know, myself and my emotions and my relationships and blah, blah, blah. It was done. You know, the the, the story had been done. Seven years on, I had had dealt with it as much as I was ever going to deal with it. I didn't need to carry on, you know, trying to find something uh, that, you know, in these travels with relationships or whatever. Um, and uh, and I had the perfect career in Wild Frontiers. I'd set up what was already proving to be a successful company, which was going to give me as much or as little travel as I wanted. Mm-hmm. So, so when I got back from that journey, which was exactly just before the millennium. So I literally got back into the country, I think, in... Uh, uh, December 1999 or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it, it was, um, I had to get my head down for a year to write the book or a bit less than that. But in the meantime, I, I started getting more serious about Wild Frontiers. Um, and uh, of course, 9-11 happened and one thing and another. But but basically, it was from that that I realized my time as a travel author, a travel writer, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, was kind of done. I had written my story probably written a lot more about it than most people will want to read. Uh, (laughs) uh, And and I'd had some amazing experiences. And to be honest, riding a horse across the Silk Road was an amazing thing to do. And there were some incredible moments on that, which I hope come through in the book. But, But I think what kind of resonates more than anything is that my own personal quest for kind of closure after what had been this horrendous grief experience had been achieved and I had got to the other side and I had the right apparatus on the other side to carry on with a good career and I was sorted. And so it's, it's kind of, it's a happy ending out of the kind of almost the worst travel experience, if you like. Yeah. It must be a relief as well, right? Surely. You you know what you, you know what you want to do. You've got your company, you travel and it's going well. And you, you would say you probably, the grief has probably got to a point where you're happy where it's at and you can move on. And you can now kind of stay away from the books and the production companies and maybe basically people telling you what to do. Exactly. And you can start the next phase. That must have been quite a nice, I guess that's, that kind of spans a decade almost. It was an, exactly a decade. I mean, well, as far in terms of the travels were a decade. So 91 yeah. to 99. Um, and then uh, by the time I'd finished that second, the, the last book, it was probably 2001, I think. And I think it yeah. came out in 2002. Um, so it was ex- exactly that. It's exactly a decade. The, 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 the 90s were my kind of adventuring, travel writing. Uh, golden days, yeah. In 2002, when I inaugurated Wild Frontiers properly, I ran my first trip in 1998. Um, but when I inaugurated it um, as a private limited company, that was 2000, 2002. Um, and so it's, yeah, 21 years old, or you could say 24 years old. That's great. And can you just tell the listeners very quickly for that, horse ride for tell what countries were involved in that because i guess some people might not know uh, the uh, okay. so, so so yeah so i fl- we we flew into pakistan 
Um, we went up the what's called the Karakoram Highway, which which goes right through. In fact, if I move one way or the other, you can probably see it. The Karakoram yeah. Highway is just running down there, uh, up over the Kunjarab Pass into China to Kashgar. And Kashgar was one of the famous old Silk Road caravanserais, where a crossroads town where people from uh, the north would meet people coming up from India, where people coming from the west and Istanbul and all this would meet people coming from Xi'an everywhere in the east. Big crossroads town, big market. So I went into the market there and I we bought a couple of horses and we rode westwards to the Caspian Sea for about 3,000 kilometers. Wow. So the countries that that involved was out of China into Kyrgyzstan, into Tajikistan, into Uzbekistan, into Turkmenistan. Wow. And on horseback as well. I mean, does that yeah. take a few days to get used to? Well, I, I'm I'm a fairly accomplished rider. So the riding... Oh, okay, you're right. What was really interesting about trying to do a journey by horse is that the riding is 5% of the issue. Oh. 95% is taken up with looking after it, feeding it, making sure it doesn't get stolen. I mean, one night in Tajikistan, we had to spend all night staying awake because we knew that the people that were staying with us in this funny little hut were basically horse thieves and they would have taken the horses and turned them into sausage meat. Oh, so, so, right. so we had to stay awake all night to make sure <laughs> the poor horses didn't get turned into sausage meat. So, um, so yeah, but I mean, amazing adventure. I mean, really yeah. quite, quite ridiculous in places going over the mountains of Kyrgyzstan. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, it was something like, I don't know, 16, 17 days where we hardly saw anybody, just hunters, a few hunters and stuff over these magical Tin Shan mountains, which are called the mountains of heaven. But then when we came down onto the plains and you're into the more kind of populated areas, it became really tough because trying to look after horses, riding along a road where you've got trucks going past and, yeah. and, and you know, finding a place to stable them at night and, and all this, it, it, was, uh, it was very tricky. But it was, um, yeah, so it, I think... It's called Silk Dreams Troubled Road. And I think what that sums up is that I had this very romantic dream of what riding a horse along the Silk Road would be. But the reality was was far from that. And it was a, a fairly tough experience. And how was it like with the back of your mind that you've got to film this and you've got to produce something basically at the end of it? Whereas like I guess the last two trips, yeah, you can write about it in your own time. It's your own very trip. But this one was a bit of pressure, really, right? It's a really good question, James. And I'll tell you why. Because when you are writing a book, all you need to do is make a couple of notes yes. halfway through a story emerging, and you'll remember it when you get home and you can write it all up. When you're filming something, if you don't catch the beginning of the story, and you often don't know what story is going to transpire, you haven't really got a story to tell. So what that meant was that you end up filming just about bloody everything for fear <laughs> that you're going to miss a good story. And you've got to bear in mind that back in these days, in those days, in the late, late 90s, we didn't have little SIM cards this big that could take you yeah. know, hours and hours and hours. Of we had cassettes that were this big that were an hour long. And we had 130 of them packed into the back of our saddlebags. And, you know, if they got wet, if they got, you know, wow. stolen or anything, you'd lose the entire thing. So, so it, it was making the film was very tough. But also, it was really enjoyable. It gave us some a focus, you know, mm. gave us something to think about getting the right shots. I mean, you know, getting shots on horseback is quite funny. I mean, the, you know, you have an establishing shot you've got to get. OK, so I had to canter off to the other side of the of the valley, put the camera on a tripod, press go, canter back and then walk <laughs> sedately through the shot and then canter back, pick up the camera before anybody nicked it. 
and ride back again. <laughs> we didn't have drones and all this sort of stuff. We had to do it very piecemeal, but or, or even GoPros or anything like that. So, uh, but I think we, considering neither of us had got had had any filmmaking experience, we 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 made a good a good uh, a good show. Okay, I, probably, I do need to watch that. Also, that area, the stands. Yep. Uh, I saw someone else actually as a guest the other day who loves the area. Do you still think that's like an area where people just don't really travel to that much because you don't hear much about like Turkmenistan or Tajikistan or Uzbekistan, like those Stan areas. It's kind of like almost the last frontier a little bit, I think, for travel. It's not like um, a much of a popular route. I, I think that so so Uzbekistan is fairly well traveled. Uh, okay. Samarkand, Bukhara, Kiva, they're they're fairly big hitting oh they're amazing towns i mean they are yeah. the, they're, they're the pride of the silk road and and the beauty of those towns is as dramatic as rome or paris or you name it i oh, mean wow. they're okay absolutely spectacular yeah. and as a consequence you get quite a few tourists going in there tajikistan turkmenistan kyrgyzstan different story um very few relatively few tourists go to those places and as a result yes i think you could call them a kind of last frontier uh, Tajikistan particularly is very off the beaten track and has some uh, amazing experiences if kind of cultural wild cultural exp- uh, travel is is what you like which mm. is what you get there I mean you know you don't get a, a great deal in the way of luxury but you get some really nice homestays you meet local people you eat their food no it's it's um it's a it's a great part of the world I, I loved it I spent a lot of time in in I mean and I've been back countless times for wild frontiers so um, yeah, I've spent quite a bit of time in, the, in in that part of Central Asia and the Caucasus, of course. So the other really yes, Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan and yeah, I mean both those two areas are fabulous. Yeah, and I think it's an area that I'm trying to learn more about. I think um, and maybe even try and get more experiences on. I think you you and one other person have, have kind of described it quite well between you. I think Mongolia is another area that I don't know too much about, yeah. which seems quite a nice off the beaten track experience as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, you know, there are still plenty of places you can get to where you're not going to get crowded out. Yeah, absolutely. And for this uh, book as well, I guess it's available in all the good book and bad bookshops, I imagine. Uh, yes, indeed. indeed, indeed. <laughs> and the film, is it is that readily available? Where would, where would uh, yeah, just that? Google it. Uh, sorry, yeah. YouTube. YouTube, YouTube. Have, Girl, okay. have, have Girl Will Travel, I think it's called. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll move on to Wild Frontiers, your adventure tour company. Yeah. So obviously, combination of all these trips you pretty much decided that's where you're going to go. It started really well in 1998. So now, what, over 20 years ago, uh, you are obviously branching out to many areas of the world. So that's kind of progressed quite nicely as a company. So you do offer tours all around the world, right? Yeah. So started in Pakistan, um, grew from there, started with group tours, but morphed into a kind of 50-50 groups and tailor-made. So people come to us wanting everything from high-end honeymoons in Sri Lanka or Argentina to multi-generational trips to you name it, really. Mm-hmm. India India is our biggest destination. The Silk Road countries you've just mentioned, the Caucasus, the Middle East is does very well for us, Latin America. Um, and uh, yeah, we run small groups, maximum group size 12. So we keep it personal. So And the reason for that was that's how I started it in the Hindu Kush. You know, if you're going to stay with a pagan tribe, in the Hindu Kush, you can't take 20 people in there. It's just <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah. So uh, 12, we can do that. And it doesn't, you know, completely smash things up. Um, and, and we've just found that that is the best number. Commercially, one of my directors or one of my board members keeps saying, you've got to increase it. I said, no, no, no. We can, <laughs> oh, 
it has done really well. Um, you know, and it was growing fast until COVID came along and that rather put the brakes on, to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, but we've managed to ride or see our way through that storm and things are picking up again now, which is great. Yeah. What's your feeling after COVID with travel? Where, where do you think it's, it's going as an industry? Do you think it's going to go back to where it was pre, pre-COVID or do you think there's a correction here? That's a very good question. And I don't know the answer, James. I mean, when you say correction, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is when I went pre-COVID, let's say Thailand, for example, uh, my example would be like something like Maya Bay, out of control. Right. Anyone, anyone can get a boat. They fill it up with as many tourists as possible. No regulation, no certain amount of people per day. And it yep. got to the point where they had to say, no, we've got to preserve this area because it's just got way out of control and money was like basically taken over. Yeah. So what I mean by that is I just think there was no or not much regulation in some countries. I, I wonder now if they're going to reset maybe. Yeah, that, that that's kind of what I thought you meant. Honestly, I, I really hope there is some, but I worry whether there will be. I do think obviously COVID was this extraordinary break on international travel. Yeah. And in terms of emissions, in terms of the, the damage that tourism can do if not regulated and done well was stopped. How long will it take to build that back up again? And will it be done in a different way? I really hope so. And I think it will in quite a lot of places. I suspect others will not be done so changed so much okay um but i think uh, i think overall certainly from a western perspective or at least from the kind of travel companies that i know and my colleagues in the industry there's definitely a greater desire to do things as sustainably and environmentally friendly and with as much thought to the local people and environments as we possibly can mm-hmm. and i think you know wild frontiers as a business was born on that premise, the trips that we run, the trips we put together, as much as anything for the benefit of our clients are naturally kind of do that because that gives our clients the best experience. Our clients want to meet local people. They want to eat local food. They want to stay in small local guest houses and local hotels. You know, they want to have a personal real travel experience, an authentic experience where they actually feel like they're in the country that they're in. They don't want to go to a place where, you know, this, the world has become quite homogenized in, in a lot of ways. Yep. If you arrive into Delhi airport or Buenos Aires airport, or even Ulaanbaatar airport, you may not know which one you're in because you're just <laughs> going to be, you're just going to be confronted by a mass of Johnny Walker bottles of whiskey and duty free <laughs> and everything else posters of, you know, whoever. So, you know, what we try to do is to get people off the beaten track away from the main sites to find more quirky, different, interesting places um, where you can still have a real travel experience. And, and I'm sure that will continue for a good long time to come. I think where there's big problems with mass tourism um, and certainly, you know, Machu Picchu, Barcelona, yeah. Venice. Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. All these. these kind of places were all already really creaking. I think they will. This, is, this will have given them the impetus to, to, to change things so that it doesn't get out of control. But it's a difficult one to manage because... Yeah, how do you manage it? That's my next how question. How do you manage it? You yeah. know, um, you can suddenly become very elitist and say, well, only people that can pay this can go there. Well, then well, that's yeah. not really fair either. So it, it, it's a difficult one. And of course, as the world has generally got wealthier, there are many, many more people traveling. Yeah, absolutely. I think Machu Picchu would be an e- like an easier one. You can say minutes per day. That's right. You and can't, you can't just walk to it. Like you have to uh, probably get a bus or whatever. It. 
exactly and they've already done that and yeah, yeah. that that is a relatively easy one i mean i was getting so jealous because we had an office in in cambodia in siem reap and oh, my, great place my, my yeah. team there kept sending me photographs of them at angkor wat with nobody else there. oh, <laughs> you know, oh God, that's, that's a classic example like, i went there i've been there twice yeah, yeah full of people yes yeah. trying to get a photo of no one in it is, is a nightmare yeah, going through the east gate at sunrise and even on a busy day you'll be okay you you'll you'll get quite a good good, good okay. but but i think i think you know that is a, a a potential for people now if you can get traveling in the next 18 months i think you will get good experiences you will get places that won't be quite as touristy i was in uh, uh, just talk about this quickly i was just in india kashmir and uh, sri lanka and um, again not so many uh international tourists and it made the experience great yeah so i'll come on to that very quickly before i've got some questions to ask you to finish the show wild frontiers we can find you at wildfrontierstravel.com i'll put yep. the the link in the show notes and no worries then i'll put some links to some certain tours in there like the hindu kush yeah great and i'll link some books your books as well where i find them on your on your website so Wait. i'll do that in the, in the show notes yeah you just come back from sri lanka and india how was that trip this year yeah just brilliant i mean a it was as i said after six months in England for the winter. Yeah. Bloody, bloody nice to go anyway. Yeah. Uh, but just the experience of traveling was great again. It was much simpler than I was expecting. There were no uh, restrictions getting into anywhere. I didn't have to take any PCR tests. I had to be double vaccinated, of course, but that sure. was simple. Uh, in India, they are over the pandemic. I mean, nobody was mentioning it. Outside of Delhi, nobody wore masks. Life is normal, absolutely full on. Uh, which was great to see and also checking out the hotels that we regularly use they're all up to a good standard um so you know our clients will experience a, a really good good time there up to Kashmir was fantastic i mean i've been back to Kashmir six or seven times since melanie died there so every time i go it is an emotional kind of bittersweet experience mm. but i still enjoy going back there and i still you know i've kind of i, I don't look at Kashmir anymore as a as as an intrinsically sad place for me it, it had an intrinsically sad and life-changing event happen to me there and in fact you know sitting here on your podcast is a direct result of what happened to Melanie all those years ago yeah so my entire life has been kind of mapped out because of that but I I have friends up there I um know a lot of places I have work to do there and I get on and I enjoy it so and what was great to see, and I've watched Kashmir over the you know last 35 years, this kind of roller coaster in terms of its security, and it was absolutely great. There, there were thousands of um, of local tourists, um, absolutely no security issues at all. Most Brilliant. of the police roadblocks have been taken away. Uh, I've written to the Foreign Office to say, come on, change your blooming travel advice because it's out of date. Yeah. Um, really, it was it was wonderful. And from there, I'd bounce straight down to Sri Lanka. I'd never been to Sri Lanka before. New country, okay. Yeah, new country, yeah. even though Wild Frontiers sell quite a lot of it. Uh, we have a really good group tour there and we sell a lot of tailor-made trips there. I'd never been and, um, and I wanted to go and check it out. And I found it absolutely fabulous. I mean, it's just really great combination of incredible landscapes and varied landscapes you know you've kind of mm -hmm. got the beach region you've got the jungle you've got yeah. the, the, the highland central region um really interesting history the whole buddhist culture um the cuisine was exquisite much better than i was expecting i was just expecting Ooh. a kind of fairly indian cuisine and it yeah, was yeah. almost more southeast asian than oh wow was it oh wow okay I thought. so really really good 
incredible hotels um, and, and great people. And, and, and I was there during, you know, the kind of political crisis. Yeah. That's I was going to ask about that. Yeah. You know, I feel desperately sorry for the Sri Lankans who have been taken for a ride by their politicians. Uh, yeah. A very, very big standard. ride. Shoot yeah. of about $19 billion. Yes, kind of standard. Um, but really sad because they're the ones having to pay the price. Yeah. Um, but as far as tourism is concerned, they want you there. They're desperate to, to have you because of uh, tourism. Many, many thousands of people are employed. It's a big earner of foreign currency. Um, and your experience is made. You, you wouldn't have even known that something was going on there. So, okay, that's good to know. Yeah, where's your plan to go there this year? So, oh, um, it's absolutely yeah. beautiful country. I, I, yeah. I loved it. I really did. I, I, I don't know whether I went with slightly lower expectations, thinking it was maybe going to be India light, but it wasn't. It was a country with its Honestly. entirely own, own culture, own history, own psyche, and uh, and and I loved it. Fantastic. I think also because of the situation now, guest tourism is not it's not booming, should we say? That's so right. maybe maybe it's a real real good experience now because you might yeah. get a bit more unique. Get out there now. Absolutely right. Okay, great, awesome. I've got some couple of features to finish the episode with. Yeah. And the first feature is imagine you're going to Sri Lanka tomorrow as an example. These are your travel must-haves. That you pack with you. Uh, I'm quite excited to hear your answers actually. And let's say on your phone or whatever listening device you have, you can only choose three bands or artists that you're gonna listen to on those long I don't know, train journeys or, or, or plane journeys. Who are they? Okay, well, I'm I, I'm I'm going to preface this by saying I, and you may be surprised by this considering my kind of history with music. Yeah. But I don't listen to music when I'm traveling. Do you unless not? It, unless it's local music, I love going to local bars, oh, okay. listening to local music. But I, I I've never enjoyed. I, I've always felt putting headphones on or ear, whatever you call them these days, um, and playing music removes you from your world that you're in and i like to be in the world that i'm in so i never do however if i was to have three bands on my phone they would probably be the clash pink floyd and the pogues oh wow yeah that's an interesting three okay what about a film downloaded uh once upon a time in america because it's four hours long <laughs> okay and a tv series there are so many good tv series out yeah there. yeah I mean, yeah goodness me talk about revolution with netflix uh breaking bad yeah it's a popular answer that i've never seen it brilliant uh, okay and what about a book it can be a classic or current one okay so i'll tell you a funny story so if you read uh, books anymore i don't know if you do read books i don't I'm not no, sure. I, I i have never put I, i've never <laughs> been without a book since since uh, for the last 35 years okay no, I do. uh so when i was riding my horse across central asia i took dr Zhivago. And uh, and oh, wow. I thought, well, I'll read that and I'll pick up another book along the way. Of course, I couldn't find a single book in English. English. Yeah. So I read Dr. Shivago three times back to back. I could probably narrate half of it <laughs> from, from heart. Uh, so that was a book that I did take on a trip. Um, Favourite books like that, though, would probably be Any Human Heart by William Boyd. That was a wonderful book. Books are great. Book. What I love about books are they they talk to you at a certain time in your life. And certain books will mean something, will mean more to you, depending on where you're at emotionally and that sort mm. of thing. What can be an amazing book to one person? Yeah, subjective. Maybe right? an amazing book to that other person at a different time, but they read it at the wrong time, if you see what yeah. I mean. Got you. I, another book I read three times was um, The Catcher in the Rye, which is um, okay. J.D. Salinger, of course. Yeah. And one offshoot, very cheeky question about that. The Beach 
you had to book the beach. Do you think yeah, that something- changed travel? Because the film came out and then I feel like that was a turning point in travel as well, where people started going, oh, hang on a minute, I can go to Thailand and see that. And like, maybe they flooded Thailand. I'm not Very sure. Interesting. I mean, obviously the beach did change, certainly for Thailand. I mean, it really did. I traveled to Thailand with Melanie in 1989 and Kopipi was literally 15 huts. Um, wow. Kotao, <laughs> Kotao on the other side of the island barely had that i think we slept in like there were three huts there or something um, i don't know what it's like now and i've never been Crazy. back <laughs> very different i expect yeah um th- i think the beach probably coincided with that era of a, a new wave in travel so yes yeah. you're probably right okay interesting okay apart from this podcast maybe what other podcast would you listen to on your travels well i was gonna say winging it um, but- <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm, I suppose I'm rather cliche, typical of a man my age. I love history. I love reading about history. I love uh, uh, listening to history. So Dan, Dan, um, Dan Snow has a very good oh. history podcast, which I enjoy. Yeah. Um, but I also do a lot of Audible, which is kind of podcast, but in a longer version. Yeah, like books, basically. Books. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have a few Audibles. Yeah, yeah. Because one one of the things that I do find difficult when you're running a business and you're um you know you're you're very much involved in that you're constantly thinking about it, finding the headspace to read books is not easy. Okay, yeah. On, on the very few occasions that I'll go and sit in a villa in Italy or something, then I can read a book. But considering that happens once every three years, it, it's it's not easy. Whereas listening to stuff I can do, so uh, and I can take it in. So whether it's car journeys or whatever, put mm. on an audible, put on a podcast. Yeah. So I think. They, they they have their place definitely and change direction with these questions maybe one piece of clothing in your backpack that you just have or footwear that you have to take my bandana and i tell you why it, it's the most brilliant thing i mean it's eye patches it's a towel it's keeps the sun off your neck it's um uh, a bandage should you need a bandage True. um it, it is so practical they are so useful uh, so that would be my one piece of clothing that's interesting. Yeah, it's great that. Okay, generically, one must-have item. It can't be a phone. Uh, is this what one piece of uh, one item to take with? Uh, probably. I don't know if I've got one here. I could show you. Oh, bugger! It's in the other room. Uh, my self-filtering water bottle. Oh, okay, that's so crucial, I right? Hate, yeah. I hate using. I just hate. There's something about using little single-use plastic bottles in. Oh, grim. Where you know they're not going to be recycled. Yeah. And they and you can get all kinds of these really, really good self-filtering water bottles. I've used them all over the world. I've barely opened a plastic water bottle in the last three years. Yeah, I totally agree with that. This is pretty grim, but has to be done sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, what other choice do you have? have to be done, it does have to be done sometimes, but if you've got one of these bottles, you won't have to again. Okay. Water water to go are our favorites. That's what we use at Wild Frontier. Okay. I'm writing that down because I think we need one of those. Okay. Two more questions for this feature is one item that reminds you of home in your backpack? Well, again, I don't want to be reminded of home. <laughs> I, I never take anything that re- would remind Fair. me of Okay. Uh, I love being immersed in the country that I'm in, not thinking about home. Cool. Love that. And last question for this feature is, you mentioned football. I'm, I'm a big football fan as well. So what sporting shirt would you maybe have, one in your backpack that you might showcase occasionally? <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I have... So when I came back one time from uh, from India, uh, I was bet by a friend that I couldn't get home overland for the same price that he could flying. So I had two hundred and eleven pounds in my pocket <laughs> to get from Delhi to London. But I'm a Man United fan, which is not the best place to be at the moment. But no, you're suffering a minute. <laughs> yeah, back in the nineties was a very good place to be. Heyday, yeah, it's a heyday. Yeah, uh, and and so uh, 
And I used to write for the United magazine. And I did an article called United Nations. And I basically went on that journey through all those countries with lots of Man United memorabilia, including shirts and everything else, uh, giving them away. And uh, Iran was the funniest one because these girls would come up to me in Iran and they'd lift their chadors and they'd have David Beckham Man United shirts on. Oh, underneath. wow. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was uh, that was quite a quite a revelation. Um, but David Beckham gets uh, everywhere, doesn't he? God, oh, what God, brand he was, the first real brand, wasn't he? In fact, you know, as I look at it from here, I can see the roof of his house. But there we are. That's oh, wow. that's another great fact. Unreal. Well, I've ever met him, but there we are. <laughs> one day, one day. Monday. We're going to finish with some quick-fire travel questions. These are traditional. Every guest gets these, and these are basically your favourite things. Hey, yeah, just a quick one before we carry on with the travel questions. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5, or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with Public, where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as T-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast, and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcasts, and other stuff. Thank you. This week's quickfire travel questions are sponsored by the Whiskey 7 Project. I do love supporting local and indie podcasts and Howard and Stephen at the Whiskey 7 Project are great. You should check them out. And here's a little trailer for you to entice you in. Thank you. You like to laugh, don't you? Brother, that's the best reason I can think of to listen to the Whiskey 7 Project. Because it is so stupid. Don't you crack up at all those videos of people doing dumb stuff? Well, the Whiskey 7 Project's kind of like that. But instead of watching it, you listen to me, Steve, and other crazy people tell stories about insane adventures we've had, and we drink while we do it. It's like Seinfeld, with whiskey. Hey, I'm Howard Dodge, but friends call me Hodo, and I want to invite you to join us on the Whiskey 7 Project. Look, I know that listening isn't your strong suit, but seriously, man, give it a shot. I guarantee you'll crack up. Come on, I know you want to. Listen to the Whiskey 7 Project. It's travel question time. Yep. So you travelled to, I think, over 90 countries. Can you name... 104 now. Bloody hell, 104. I'm out of date. Crikey. Sri Lanka was my 104th. Okay, 104 countries. Tell the listeners three countries out of the 104 that they should go to that you've been to. India, Georgia, and Iran. Oh, Iran's high on my list. Really is. Okay. And three countries that you've not been to that's on your hit list. Japan, Nepal, up until recently, I'd have said Russia. <laughs> oh. But, I'm, but yeah. I'm not going to say that right now. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's, sorry, um, uh, what did I say? Japan, Nepal, Philippines. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Philippines. I've not been there either. It's kind of the missing part in Southeast Asia, that. Yeah. Uh, what about the best beach you've seen? Andaman Islands. That's India, right? That's India. Yeah, my friend went there. It looks incredible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What about a favourite view? From a viewpoint. Right behind me. Yeah. Pakistan, Hindu Kush or Kailash? That, that, that is the Karakoram. Karakoram? It's the Karakoram Highway in a place called Hunza, which is, um, and the mountain you can see there is Mount Rakaposhi, and uh, there is no view better. Okay. What about the country with the best value for money that you've experienced? 
That's a very good question. Uh, do you know what? I'm going to say Italy. Really? Yeah. I mean, relative to it being oh, wow. a Western country yeah. with Western things, I think Italy is fantastic value. You can stay at some agro-turismo places for 60 euros a night with a four-course dinner and a decent breakfast. Fantastic value. Yeah, wow. I think. I mean, obviously, India's in one place or another, but but yeah, that's that's what I'd say. Okay. Do you drink coffee? I certainly do. <laughs> okay. If you pick one city in the world to drink coffee and watch the world go by, where would that be? Um, Cusco. Oh, what a place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see why you said that. Or, or Addis Ababa. Okay. Because you get damn good coffee in Addis Ababa. And well, the next question you. was, what's your country's favourite coffee? Like, what is the, the coffee you love the most? Well, what I'm drinking at the moment, which I'm absolutely loving, is Dark Java Roast. Cool, that's hardcore. Really, really nice. And it's quite strong, but it's really nice. Um, but Ethiopian Buna, as it's called, has a very distinct flavour. And I really like that as well. Okay, how do you drink coffee, by the way? Extra question. Uh, just black. Same as me. It's the right answer. There, there, there's one. Uh, I love this. This, this uh, is a Greek proverb that says coffee should be drunk as, as black as hell, as strong as death and as sweet as love. But, um, <laughs> but I don't go for the sweet as love bit. No, absolutely not. Okay. And do you have a, maybe I'll give you two here, two favourite cities that you've been to? Yeah, favourite cities. Istanbul and... Buenos Aires. Fantastic. Okay. And do you have a favourite trek or walk? Yeah, to Concordia Base Camp up uh, to, to K2. Okay. Unreal. Okay. And do you have a favourite landmark? This can be man-made or nature? Ooh, goodness me, a landmark. Um, I mean, I do have some certain places in the world that 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 i that i that i've been to on numerous occasions that put me in this very mellow beautiful zone um and uh, so i'm gonna say tashrabat in kyrgyzstan it's one of the last remaining caravanserais the old kind of staging posts from the silk road and it's uh i rode my horse there about three days out of kashgar uh in the southwest corner of uh, kyrgyzstan absolutely beautiful place Wow. I don't think anyone's um, <laughs> recommended that before. Uh, do you have, you must have done this a few times, a favourite party place in your travels? Uh, yeah, Buenos Aires again. Oh, really? I've uh, heard that before. That, yeah. That's a good, well, actually, of course, Buenos Aires, or, or you could say Rio, or you could say Salvador in Brazil is also a great party. Okay. Um, somebody said to me once, and I thought this is very true, the Brazilians party like it's the first day of the world and the Argentines party <laughs> like it's the last day of the world. <laughs> that's brilliant yeah yeah i like that okay and do you have a favorite cuisine or food like internationally uh, yes um I, I, I mean again italian cuisine is hard to beat but yeah. if i'm going for southeast asian which i think the delicacies of southeast asian food is fabulous i'd probably go for vietnamese okay vietnamese i didn't yeah i'm not over over all the vietnamese controversially and, and, and actually as i've just said i absolutely love Sri Lankan cuisine as well okay yeah I'm of a Thai. That's my that's my number yeah. one. Yeah, Thai, great as well. Yeah. Yeah, love it all. What about what about a high adrenaline activity that you've done? Any favourite ones? High adrenaline. Well, you could say walking through Afghanistan in a war. In a war, yeah, that's pretty high, high adrenaline. Yeah. High adrenaline. 
Um, I mean, I've never really gone in for kind of bungee jumping and that sort of thing, if that's what you mean. Um, although I have done some whitewater rafting and I've oh, loved yeah. that. That's great. Yeah. Done that in Georgia uh, and Kyrgyzstan and Canada, funnily enough. Um, so I've very much enjoyed that. But for me, travel is all about and of course i don't want to sound like a you know pompous fool here because of course when one goes traveling you can do all sorts of experiences but for me traveling has always been about learning about the place yes meeting yeah. the people just experiencing the life that local people experience not necessarily yes. having to do something extra that is put on from a tourist perspective got it um, yeah it's a fair point okay if you could live in one country that you've never lived in before where would you live I have lived in India and I have kind of lived in Pakistan. Yeah, you can't um, say those. And I can't say those. Uh, uh, Italy, again. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, Italy is a, it's a popular answer. Don't worry. All good. Yeah. What about a favourite lake? It's more a Canadian-based question here, but I'm, I guess you've seen some lakes in your time. Lake Songkul in Kyrgyzstan. Okay. Beautiful emerald lake. Okay. Penultimate question is, I, I put this to Ebba Thompson, actually, and she struggled with this one. If you could pick only one view for the rest of your life whether that's going to be mountains the idyllic beach in the cook islands or the wild plains in africa or a city what one view would you take that is very tricky because it's easy just to say behind me it is but, yeah but but actually i would probably pick the sea there's something okay. about the sea that is so constantly moving and changing and so if i was going to choose the sea where would it be uh, there is a beautiful beach in Goa called Pandalim Beach, which okay. is this horseshoe-shaped cove, and the sun sets just beyond it. And it's, it, to be honest, it's been a little bit ruined by tourism right now. Uh, but it, it might be right of, now, though. It might be okay got, now. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. If you got rid of all of that, <laughs> that is a beautiful, beautiful beach view. Okay, that's brilliant. Okay, the last question is if. People listen now and they're kind of on the fence of why they should go traveling, maybe quit the job, maybe go for a period of time that's a bit longer than a month. Why should they go? Well, I mean, obviously, that's going to be a very personal, specific question to each individual who is maybe looking for something more in their lives. If they're not feeling fulfilled in their life, then they need to question, I guess, quite a few things. Yeah. Would travel necessarily be the answer to that? No, I don't think it would necessarily. All the travels that I've done have always had some sort of purpose to them rather than, I mean, look at you, here you are in Vancouver and you set up a podcast, you've done all this stuff, you know, you're, 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 you're using your travels as a platform to, 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 to experience other things in life, to grow, to develop, to do all these things. I've done exactly the same. And I think, I think that's where travel can be a really positive um, influencer I don't think travel just for travel's sake is necessarily um, the answer to many problems, uh, unless you're, you know, 19 and on a gap year and, you know, you've never seen the world, then great, mm. get out there, go and do it. Fantastic. It's all going to be new. It's all going to be exciting. Uh, but to quit your job, to go traveling, um, fine, um, if that's what you want to do. Uh, but I think we all need a purpose. Otherwise, things just become... It's like anything you do. If you're a musician, if you're a, an author, if you're just, you know, if, if you're just doing it for its own sake, it, it, it's not fulfilling. You have to kind of have a have a have a reason for doing it. Um, and travel can fill that void for a lot of reasons. But um, yeah, it, it wouldn't necessarily be the answer for everything. Okay, interesting answer that. Yeah, yeah. 
I'll take that. Okay, Johnny, thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you and thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, James. It's been great fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.